Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This brave storyteller has worked on the front line of some of the world's worst disasters and most protracted conflicts and has just finished her posting in the United States. Zoe Daniel is returning to Australia after finishing her stint as Washington Bureau Chief for ABC News. She tells us about the life of a foreign correspondent and her love for speaking to real people on the ground at each of her varied postings, from Africa to Thailand and finally the USA. On this episode of The Journo Project, Zoe also talks about what coping mechanisms she has developed over the years when covering disasters and dealing with communities in shock, and then having to bring those stories back to the Australian community. Zoe Daniel, welcome to Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. Hi, Nance. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I've made the exception you are the first person that I've done by Skype. I've been very fussy with my Journo Project, only uh, talking to people face-to-face, but couldn't possibly resist the opportunity to speak to you on the cusp of leaving the US, where you have been such a wonderful foreign correspondent for so many years. Thanks for making time for us today. It's my pleasure. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. So, Tell us about your feelings at this time. I imagine there must be very mixed feelings with you about to leave your posting. Was this a day that you thought would never come in some ways? It's been a long, relentless posting in some ways. It's been incredibly busy, as is obvious, working with the Trump administration and grappling with what's been a huge global story for the last four years. But also in some ways, I feel like I literally arrived here just a few months ago I guess there's been so much happening. It's been so incredibly busy and such a a dynamic time and quite hectic that it's just gone in a flash. Probably feels a lot faster than my previous postings in a way. We were in Southeast Asia for five years and it felt like we'd been there for a long time. We were really embedded. Uh, But here in the US, I almost feel like I just arrived and now I'm leaving. But four years have passed by in between. (laughs) What an incredible time for you to be there, Zoe. Did you kind of foresee any of what has occurred when you first embarked on this journey? 100% not. Uh, (laughs) When I applied for this job and was interviewed and appointed to the position in mid-2015, Of course, the expectation was that Hillary Clinton would win the 2016 election. There there was no expectation that this renegade candidate, Donald Trump, would win the election over her. It was kind of seen as a, a bit of a novelty, that it would be an interesting campaign, but that in the end, voters would revert to the centre if you like, and that Hillary Clinton would take the election, or if not, uh, a middle ground Republican candidate. But of course, the 2016 campaign played out very differently to how anyone expected. And then really the aftermath of that actually was probably the busiest period of the posting, 2017, after Donald Trump was inaugurated and he started to implement 
some of his more controversial policies, things like pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, moving the uh, embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, uh, pulling out of uh, various trade agreements around the world and, and sacking staff left, right and centre. Uh, so it was pretty relentless, certainly, for at least the first couple of years that I was here and really uh, the whole time. And, of course, now we're grappling with an impeachment process that will come to a head just as I leave the country. Oh, Zoe, I was thinking that. I mean, is there part of the reporter in you with impeachment looming that you think, oh, I just wish I could maybe hang on for a few more weeks or are you uh, pretty much ready to, to move on to the next chapter? Look, in a way, of course, I would kind of like to... I guess, complete that story. It's something that I've been working on in various ways, probably throughout the Trump administration, because it's been speculated for so long that the Democrats would go down this path. It's a little frustrating to be probably literally leaving the country on Sunday night, the 15th, and for potentially an impeachment vote to happen the next day. It is a little tempting to try and stay on for a couple more days. But I think the thing that you learn when you're a correspondent and particularly in this posting is that there will always be another story. You'll always be leaving something unfinished. It's never going to be quite a job done. And there does come a point where it feels good to hand over to other good people who can put new energy and have fresh legs, uh, particularly in a job like this where you, you work 24-7 the entire time that you're a correspondent from the time that you land in the country uh, to the time that you leave it. And for me, that's been four years of being on call and working uh, day and night, and I am looking forward to some family time. What are some of the, the highlights for you looking back, Zoe, particularly from the US? We'll, we'll talk about your other correspondencies as well. But I think one, one thing that marks the reports that I hear from you so much is, is how you really get to the real people on the ground. Uh, and I just wonder whether there's some of those. Of course, you do these massive political machinations, but is it some of those everyday people and telling those stories that, uh, that stay with you as well? Yeah, I think the thing that I've enjoyed in this posting was during the 2016 campaign, we, we spent a lot of time in rural and regional areas talking to ordinary people about their voting intentions, about their, their lives, their frustrations. And it, it gave me a pretty deep sense, actually, of how divided the country is, but also that Donald Trump did resonate with a lot of people because he was a different candidate. He was the anti-politician. He was not the Washington establishment. So much as I say that when I got the job, I, I guess everyone expected that Donald Trump wouldn't win the election. By the time I'd been here for a while, talking to a lot of those people in the so-called flyover states and really sort of connecting with people who weren't in the wealthier big cities on the East Coast, that I realised that there was a pretty good chance that he would win the election. In fact, I came back from a lot of those assignments where we did road trips, just talking to ordinary people in places like Ohio and Western Pennsylvania and elsewhere and saying to the staff in the office here, I can't believe that Hillary Clinton's going to win this because Donald Trump's rallies had thousands of people queuing to see him and really impassioned crowd. And she just didn't seem to be generating that. Um, so I do think, you know, I always think in all of my journalistic work that the thing that I enjoy most is talking to ordinary people. But I also feel like that's the most 
revealing thing to do because you really drill down to what's making people tick, what's making local towns happy and sad and and the issues that are important to people. So that's probably the the overwhelming thing. But there have been a few other assignments that I've done while I've been here that stand out. One is the hurricane in Puerto Rico, uh, Hurricane Maria, uh, where we were there, again, talking to real people about the impact on them from a, a vast disaster uh, when they weren't getting adequate help from, from the US government. And in, in a way, it's the same sort of thing as I've just described, because the point of that sort of reporting is to go and talk to people on their own turf in their own environment and to make a connection with them and to allow them an opportunity to tell their stories. What can you recall really from, I remember your stories very very vividly from Puerto Rico, I'm bringing that back because it's probably an area in Australia we don't hear an awful lot about as well. But when you're on the ground in these terrible incidents, and of course you've been been at a few, um, floods and just horrendous things, how do you cope with that Zoe as as a foreign correspondent? What's it like being, you know, dealing with these communities and shock and then having to bring back those reports to the Australian community? Yeah, it can be really quite challenging because obviously you're normally jumping very quickly when it's a disaster like that. So in that case, we went down on a C-130 military plane and we flew overnight into this darkened island where all the power was cut off and it was sort of a lot of suburbs of even the major towns were covered in, covered in mud and the small villages were just completely wiped out and there was no electricity, no running water, very little food, uh, nothing really operational and a lot of people in desperate need. So you hit the ground, you're already tired, you're facing all sorts of logistical issues with technology of getting signals so that you can get your material out, working out transport, how to get around when there's power lines down everywhere and flooding and trees on the road. And, and then also when you get to the people that you need to speak to, then they're grief-stricken and in shock and many of them have lost family members and lost their homes and they don't know what they're going to do next and you're trying to elicit a story from them but also be very sensitive to their situation it can be quite confronting and sometimes it can feel a little cruel in that of course we can leave at the end and come back to our comfortable homes and those people even years later from that particular hurricane are still putting their lives back together Uh, but I do think that mostly people really appreciate the opportunity to, that, that you're interested enough in their situation to talk to them about it and allow them to tell you what's going on and to show what's happened. And, of course, a place like Puerto Rico, which is kind of a poor U.S. territory, it doesn't have state status, it wasn't getting adequate help from U.S. authorities at the time, and that became like a real political football. In a way, that makes it even more important to tell that story, to, to bring light to the situation of people who are, you know, in very desperate straits and, and not getting adequate support. What coping mechanisms have you developed over the years for, for really dealing with some of these confronting stories? I think there's three things. Uh, one is when you return from the situation to talk to your colleagues and your family about what you've seen. Some people prefer to talk to like a formal counsellor or or someone who's qualified in that area. But my preference is to 
talk to the cameraman who I've been with, talk to my husband, talk to my friends. Um, I also think just to really give yourself an opportunity to rest and recuperate after covering something like that because it can be incredibly draining. And my third sort of broader coping strategy for life generally in terms of covering this sort of uh, crazy time of US politics is just get exercise. I think a lot of things crystallise when you go out and sort of uh, pound the pavement a bit um, and it, it can stop your brain ruminating on things and, and often you'll feel a lot better about things after you've sort of been for a run or gone to the gym than you did before. Get your brain back in your body. Sometimes I feel like I need yeah. to do that too. <laughs> it reminds me of a, a point that in your Storyteller book where you talked about this sense of being hyper alert and I just felt for you um, because I thought, wow, it sounds like Zoe really doesn't get much sleep. Um, <laughs> how do you how do you go with that and, <laughs> and the foreign desk ringing you at all hours of the night? I mean, gee, it must be really hard to actually have those times to, to rest and recuperate. I think the world that we live in now makes it much more difficult to switch off because we're always connected and it's very difficult, especially when you're in this kind of role, to just get away from your phone and put it down because you do you need to be plugged in all the time because things happen and then when they happen, you need to react to them quickly. I mean, even just last night, as an example, I was home chopping up vegetables for dinner and suddenly there was a flash on my phone that there was a mass shooting in a, on a military base in Hawaii. So I sent out a message to all the staff, started thinking about what we would do if we needed to move people, who we would move, what the logistics would be. Thankfully, um, it turned out to be not not as serious as it first looked, but you are hypervigilant all the time. Uh, I do think that when you're not working, one strategy is to have really quality time with friends and family and, and try to really make that count. And so with my kids, for example, we try to, when we have holidays, we try to really enjoy them and have a lot of time together as a family unit. So it gives you something to look forward to when I guess you're sort of working really hard the rest of the time. You have had some great holidays. I've seen it on the photos on Facebook and stuff, Zoe. <laughs> I've been very jealous. But, I mean, that that must be a big part of being in these countries and, and stopping that sense of isolation in a way and actually being part of the culture in which you're living in too. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been to – I haven't really counted them lately, but over 40 states in four years – and some of those I've been to for holidays, most of them I've been to for work. But it's a very different experience, obviously, going to somewhere to have a, a holiday with your family than going there for work. And it d does give you a very different sense of a place to spend leisure time there and to just interact with people as people rather than be running around on a deadline trying to get interviews and things like that. So I think America, too, is a very interesting country in the sense that it is very divided and a lot of people tend to sort of stick to the place that they're from rather than exploring places where people are different to them. So, I mean, on election night in 2016, for example, I was at Hillary Clinton's event and obviously there was complete devastation there when she didn't win the election. And, and someone, one of her supporters said to me, I feel like our country has been taken over by aliens and I just don't know these people. And I said, well, have you ever been to Ohio or Kentucky or any of the inland states and talked to people about their thoughts and feelings and their needs and frustrations? And he said, oh, no, 
no, if I go anywhere, I go to Europe. So I think there is that disconnect within the US and that's something that as a correspondent you have to work to not get caught up in and try to interact with people from all different walks of life to get a sense of what their experiences are. So you've been in this journo game for a couple of decades now, Zoe, in a a number of countries. Can we go back to really how you started? We've we've had a bit of a run of Queenslanders on the journo project and I'm glad to see a bit of Tasmanian influence coming through here. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I grew up in Launceston and there was no journalism course in Tasmania when I finished high school. So when I was 18, I went to Adelaide to the University of South Australia at McGill and I did a journalism degree there. And when I was in third year, I started working for the ABC as a casual producer uh, on some regional radio programs. And from there, I was appointed to a producer job in Kempsey in northern New South Wales. And I worked there for a while and went down to Sydney, uh, still with the ABC, and then up to Lismore, again on the north coast. So I worked sort of that beat for quite a few years in regional radio and also for rural. And I then was appointed presenter of the Victorian Country Hour. So I went down to Melbourne and worked for the rural department for several years before going into radio current affairs, which I think is where you and I first crossed paths. Mm, that's right. And, yeah, worked for Radio CAF for a few years and then went into – actually worked on Alan Kohler's business program for a while, was a business reporter for some time, and then went into TV news. And it was when I was in TV news, having jumped around, working on Late Line and 7.30 and all sorts of different things that I was appointed to my first posting as Africa correspondent based in Johannesburg. Uh, So I was lucky enough to cover the Athens Olympics for radio as a radio reporter in mid-2004 and it was when I was there that I had a phone call to say that I'd been appointed to the Africa job. So I came back and packed up my life with my husband and we moved to Joburg. From Athens to Johannesburg. (laughs) <laughs> quite a quite a, quite a contrast. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a contrast. I mean, it's interesting because that's fifteen or so years ago, more than fifteen years ago, and we've largely been out of Australia ever since. Much as we've dipped in a couple of times, uh, but we've largely been out of Australia really since mid two thousand and four. I know a lot of my students uh, at university level dream of being a foreign correspondent. Is that something that was in your mind all that time? I mean, was there sort of a method to all of these jumping around or or was it really just trying to get every opportunity that you could? I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and I really did employ a system whereby I could see that the way things were going in my era, in that sort of late 90s, early 2000s period, was that you had to be very multi-skilled, that you had to be able to do radio and television equally well, you had to be able to do news and current affairs equally well, Um, you had to be incredibly self-sufficient technically, and also you had to be able to shoot. So the first foreign correspondent job that I was in in Africa was a, a video journalist position, so I filmed my own stories. And obviously over time we've added digital to that. I mean, it's funny, isn't it, to think that when I first came into radio in the mid-90s, I was editing on reel-to-reel tape and now everything is totally digital, as you know, and it's been a huge period of, of development. But I was very much ticking boxes uh, in terms of what I thought I needed to be a correspondent and it took a bit of time, uh, but in the end that was a successful strategy and 
yeah, three postings later. And how crucial was that rural experience right at the beginning? I think it's really fundamental and actually I often say to people that being a rural reporter and being a foreign correspondent are a very similar job because much of the reporting is field-based, a lot of it is meeting people face-to-face, much of it can be in small communities and it it's often about telling really earthy grassroots stories and making connections with people and using some of the production strategies that you would use as a rural journalist are really effective as a correspondent as well things like using natural sound and and sound effects and you know really being aware of bringing people to the environment that you're in whether it be for radio or tv you know taking them somewhere that they haven't been or bringing them a perspective that they haven't heard or or seen before so i think there's great synergy between the two jobs and the other thing is just that capacity to be work really independently in a remote environment, to be very capable of problem solving, able to innovate and to just be able to get on with it even when you, you have to work on your own and you can be quite solitary a lot of the time. Oh, I'm glad to hear your backup on that. Zoe, I'm, my poor students, I'm, I bang on pretty much every lecture about how they've got to get away from where they grew up and go and see the world a bit and that's how they learn their craft. Yeah, it's hard to move away from your home, obviously. But, you know, I did that when I left Tasmania when I was 18. But and I've pretty much moved ever since from, from there to Adelaide, northern New South Wales, to Sydney, to Melbourne, to Darwin, to Joburg, Cambodia, Thailand, the US. You can always go home when you need to. You know, home, mostly everything's still there um, and you, you still it's important to really important actually for work stress and stuff like that to retain a connection to your home and, and your people at home so, that shouldn't prevent you from going and having adventures somewhere else so the, your Tasmanian identity still informs your work a bit does it yeah definitely I mean I I think growing up in a regional town like Launceston gives me a particular perspective gives me a, a perspective on what a great privilege it is to travel and see places that are big and dynamic but also gives me a real appreciation of what small communities give you and the the warmth that comes from that and also how important those small communities are to driving countries and economies and communities all over the world and I my my dad my stepmom and my sister are all still in Launceston and we love getting down there and we'll be trying to get down there pretty soon after we get home it's a wonderful place must have been such a contrast being in Africa from there what are some of your recollections of that time I mean the stories that came from there I was just amazed at how you kept going to be honest there was quite a lot of trauma as well as joy really in the reporting Africa's a hard place to work. The distances are incredibly vast. The stories are often traumatic, obviously. I mean, you're covering war, desperate poverty, uh, natural disasters, um, famine, things like drought. I mean, political crises. Sometimes it doesn't feel like there's a lot that's positive, but this positive in Africa is the people. They're just so wonderful and very culturally different across the different regions of Africa. But across the board, just welcoming and really love, feel wonderful about telling their stories and are always so happy that you've come to to speak to them and to give them an opportunity to do that. We loved our time in Africa. We actually, even now, I mean, I've finished in Africa at, at the end of 2006. I still miss it a lot love to go back to South Africa sometime and there's lots of other countries in, in Africa that I'd love to take my children to as well. It's incredibly 
dynamic, interesting people, culturally interesting, arty music. It's It's got everything. What are the differences and similarities between working in some of those war zones that you spoke about? I mean, the, the photo on your storyteller book of you and the, the flak jacket and, and also like at, of natural disasters. I mean, are these stress levels comparable or is it completely different, I suppose? I think the thing with working in conflict is, you know, the direct potential of getting hurt or killed yourself. So you obviously you have that very heightened sense of risk the photo on the front of the book is from the Bangkok civil unrest from 2010 where the red shirts took over the city and they were eventually forcibly removed by the Thai military. And that was an incredibly dangerous situation. The civil unrest is one of the more dangerous situations that you can come up with because it's different to a war zone where there's usually a front line, not always, but you just don't kind of know where the enemy is in in that kind of situation. So that was extremely stressful to cover. I mean, I've been as well in Africa to places like Darfur where it's more of a a war situation. But again, it, it was it's kind of a pretty unformed sort of conflict, so difficult to know where the enemy is, difficult to know where the front line is. Um, so you're just very aware of your surroundings and your physical safety in that kind of environment in terms of stepping on a landmine, getting shot, you know, those sorts of things. In a natural disaster, it's a little bit different. You're kind of exposed to all sorts of other risks, things like contaminated water and contaminated food, flooding, downed power lines, fallen trees. Um, Sometimes law and order can break down and then therefore you have those sorts of physical risks that you experience in a war zone. So there there are certainly synergies. I'm a big planner, so I tend to sort of think really hard about what the risks will be before I go somewhere and I take equipment and and have a plan in place around where I'm going to stay and how I'm going to get around and uh, who I'm going to be with who has local local knowledge to help me keep me safe but also the team overall because it's not just me on my own ever. It's you know always a cameraman now and usually a producer or fixer as well. Oh, that's an important point too, that, that you do have that little team and how much you rely on them in these places as well. Yeah, local knowledge is really key in that kind of situation. I mean, you, your fixer, I think it might have been Tony Jones who once said, you know, a, a good correspondent is basically as good as their fixer or their producer and, and that is absolute truth. And these are people who are not in front of the camera and do not get credit but often they're the ones setting up the talent, getting you to the right location, helping keep you safe, informing you about what the, the issues are, making sure that you've got the story straight, helping you check facts. It's all, you know, very key. No, no job is done by just one person. There's always a team behind the person who's standing in front of the lens. And Thailand was a pretty different experience to Africa, I imagine, or similar in some ways. <laughs> Uh, Thailand was great and that posting was actually really good because I was covering nine countries based out of Bangkok. So it was extremely busy, but it was also very diverse. So, And I was quite lucky in terms of the stories that were happening at the time um, when, I, when I was there in that there was a lot going on. So there was that uh, civil unrest political situation uh, with the Thai government that Aung San Suu Kyi was released. Burma had elections for the first time. Uh, it, it was just a period where 
a lot happened. So it was an extremely busy posting, but also really dynamic because you're not just covering Thailand, you're covering all of the countries in Southeast Asia. It's a, a, other than Indonesia when I was there. So it's, it's a region that I love. Everything's quite close. So you can get to most of your countries that you need to get to within a couple of hours flight. And that just enables you to do lots of different diverse stories and, and speak to lots of different people and send stories back to Australia that are relevant to Australians about people in their region and things that are happening in Asia, which I think is really important and a great privilege as well. So what's the next step for you now, Zoe? I'm going to take some time off. I have about a year of leave-owing. I bet you do by the sound of that. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to get my family back to Australia in the next couple of weeks and we're going to go to our beach shack down on the Great Ocean Road for a month or so. Beautiful. Then we'll get back into our house in Melbourne and get the kids settled into school and um, it's a big transition for them, so I want to be there for them for, for a while. So I probably won't go back to work until after Easter. And as to what I will be doing, that's a work in progress for the moment. Just it, coming back as a correspondent can be a lot more difficult than going, which seems a bit counterintuitive. But Oh, no, I was going to ask you that. To mm. come back, yeah. Uh, what can match a foreign correspondency? It m- must be... Does it play on your mind or you really just keep moving on to the next assignment? Uh, well, I guess it'll play on my mind if something doesn't pan out. But <laughs> in, in general, things do pan out. And it, sometimes you just got to be a little bit patient. And I think this this is a particularly big transition for us because, as I said, we've been out of Australia now basically since mid-2004 and this time we feel like we're going back and we're going to try to stay back for a while so that the kids can have some time being Australian. So that's a big shift because normally when we've gone back, we've kind of expected to leave again within a couple of years and that's not our intention this time. So I I need to be a little bit patient and allow the work situation to come together in the way that I would like it. Um, but in the meantime, I'm just going to try and enjoy spending some time with my family and open my eyes to what's around me and turn off my Trump alerts. <laughs> uh, well, Zoe, it's been amazing talking to you and reflecting on your career. My, my last question for you, I've asked all of the participants in the Journal Project just about, I wonder from the American perspective where you've been, have you heard much about the press freedom debate in Australia and coming back to Australia, I think from that US perspective where uh, the press freedoms, I suppose, are quite different. I was just interested in your reflections on that. Yeah, I mean, America has press freedom or free speech built in, into its constitution. So on the face of it, that's very much entrenched in, in US society. But that said, I think during the period of the Trump administration particularly, we've, we've seen obviously some erosion of that, uh, for example, the White House no longer does regular press briefings, getting access to people to give you information on even the most basic things has become increasingly difficult. There's an increasing culture of trying to block journalists and also the obvious issue of not only delivering you fake news or things that are not true, but turning things that are true into fake news. It's almost a case of 
if you say it often enough, it becomes true. And that's become a, a strategy of politicians here that when the news is something that they just don't like, they just brand it fake, fake news as a way of dismissing it so that the rank and file of society will dismiss it as well. I think it's a really deep problem, obviously, like any journalist, I'm incredibly passionate about press freedom. And I think that one thing that we all need to grapple with, and this comes from my heart as someone who comes from a, a regional area and has worked in a lot of rural and regional settings, is the more that we lose those small publications, those small radio stations, those small TV outposts, it becomes more and more difficult to hold the powerful to account because the power starts in those local environments and then builds to uh, the national level. And the, the problem for small communities is how can they expect any accountability from anyone when all the news is just at a national level coming out of, be it Canberra or Washington, when people in their own communities are doing things that they need to be called out for. Um, and I think that that's something that we really need to grapple with as a society generally, because I don't think that's good for any of us. Is it about reconnecting as journalists too with with the public to, to try and communicate to that the importance of what could be lost? Well, I think it comes back to basics of going out and spending FaceTime with people and actually just talking to people about what's happening to them in their lives, in their communities. And as media organisations get shaved down more and more, as we know, there's less and less time to do that. But that's actually the key to what we do, those basics of boots on the ground, going out, talking to people, getting on the phone, making a call, driving out to the farm, having a cup of tea uh, and figuring out what the actual truth is. Uh, but also in communities, and it doesn't matter if you're working in the suburbs of Brisbane or out in a, a rural community in, you know, Kimber in South Australia or wherever it might be, that you connect with people and you're part of that community. You know, you're not just because you're a journalist doesn't mean you're separate. You're, you're within that and you have a role to play. Oh, Zoe, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And now on to your farewell party in Washington. I just can't believe that you squeezed us in and, and it was really great to speak to you before you come home. Thanks a lot, Nance. Great to talk to you. That was foreign correspondent Zoe Daniel speaking to the Journo Project from ABC's studios in Washington. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, aka The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time. <laughs>